welcome to the show. We've got a special guest, Road to Serfdom, a Twitter personality and truth teller. Uh, he's gained some uh, some heat from Twitter itself for some things that he's put out, but also a lot of followers because of that. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. You are, I think I said it in the DMs, but you are the only person to actually ask me for an interview, at least so far. Uh, which is kind of surprising, considering you know what I mean. Like this is this is one of the things that's been bothering me is how little attention it's been getting. I mean, it's been getting a lot of attention, attention, right, from from people who see. And I guess I should just describe what we're talking about here. Uh, there was a particular tweet mm. that I did. Yeah, go for yeah, it. That, that I'm I'm calling the movement license tweet. That tweet um, is just objectively factual. Um, there's really nothing in it that that is misleading at all. And Twitter, within 10 minutes of me posting it, um, put it behind every possible restriction and oppressive uh, censorship that they possibly could, mm-hmm. short of deleting it. And as a result, it exploded. I mean, it was exploding, and I guess that's probably why they did it. It got a million impressions that that evening. Yeah, and people. <laughs> When you think, when people think that something is being hidden from them, what's that, the Streisand effect? They're more likely to yeah. to try to seek it out and find out what it is. I think so, yeah. yeah. So you said, quote, they're not vaccine passports, they're movement licenses. It's not a vaccine, it's experimental gene therapy. Lockdown is at best completely pointless universal medical isolation, and at worst, ubiquitous public incarceration. Call things what they are. Not their euphemisms. And Twitter labeled it as misleading. <laughs> Learn how vaccines work. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely the the mRNA ones. Not vaccine as that term has always been used. Right. Yeah. It's because you know, traditionally the vaccine introduced either a, a disarmed, so to speak, pathogen or pieces of the pathogen, but this one uh, puts yep. mRNA, which is what your DNA is supposed to make to transcode proteins, and I, it's yeah, it's, it sounds cool in theory, but I don't know. Yep, that's exactly right. It's it's you know um, the normal a normal traditional vaccine is is an attenuated version of the pathogen. Generally speaking, it's it's been you know, sabotaged in some way so that it, it isn't quite as virulent, but still has enough of the original DNA of the pathogen so that your immune system can identify large sections, and that's how you mm-hmm. get immunity. Um, and we, there's all sorts of conversations to have about vaccines and, and their efficacy in the traditional sense, but in this case, as you say, this is, this is literally a gene therapy. The whole technique of doing this is called the field of study of doing it is called gene therapy, and that's why. I, and it's experimental in the sense that it's a brand new one, and they haven't done any tests. The tests are ongoing. I, I believe the the tests are officially supposed to end in twenty twenty three. They skipped the animal tests. I, I, yeah, I haven't been able to actually positively confirm that they skipped all animal tests. Possibly they did do some mm-hmm. animal tests, but previous animal tests of similar types of gene therapies. MRNA vaccines is what they want to try to call it. Um, resulted in the deaths of all the animals. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. That's not 
That's not good. No, it's not good. Not pleasant. And 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 no. beyond that, I mean, just to, to finish up the, the technical absurdity of their pushing this vaccine, or unless you want to wait a little bit and get more into depth uh, later in the interview on this, because this, it's really damning when you start to look at the, the science of this and, you know, the, the numbers involved, the, the facts that this vaccine, sorry, that this, that this virus is 99.98% survivable by almost everybody, right? And that, yeah, and that, that's, that's only the very, very old and sick. Yeah, and we're already sick. Exactly. It hasn't. It's so close to the people. In other words, generally speaking, most of the recorded deaths actually were not from COVID nineteen. They were from the comorbidities. Um, but mm-hmm. even if somebody actually died from COVID nineteen and not their comorbid- comorbidities or something else like the flu or another cold. Um, they did so within a month of their expected death. And this is why the, the global average excess death rate did not actually significantly change in the novel release year. In the, you know, in the first year of the release of a novel pathogen, the global average of excess deaths did not really change. So what you're saying is the people, most of the people who died from COVID were people who were old and sick and who were already going to die. Yep, they were within a month or two of, of death, and that's why the global averages didn't change. So even if there was a large number of people who actually died from COVID-19, they would have been so close to the expected deaths that that the global average for the year did not change. But the truth is, mm-hmm. you know, they really didn't have enormous numbers of deaths. The actual official CDC record for deaths, which is inflated, um, puts it at somewhere around 5%. So if you're over 80 and you have three comorbidities, you have a 5% chance of dying from it, according to them. And yeah. then if you're, but if you're under 50, it's 99.98% survivability. And I should point out that that's if you contract the syndrome. This is not just simply exposure to SARS-CoV-2, but getting COVID-19, you know, actually having the syndrome. And yeah, the virus and the disease are two separate things. Right, exactly. And not treating it. So mm-hmm. if you actually get the syndrome, don't treat it at all, you still have a 99.98% chance of surviving it. Now, children, basically it's statistically impossible for children to die from this, period. Like, it's the number yeah. is so low that that it would you know it's not impossible but it's virtually impossible and i mean i've even seen some studies where having children in the house seems to contribute uh, to a protective factor for the adults in the house they're less likely to get sick from COVID and stay sick as long and you know the and the science of that actually there's a lot of possible explanations for that but the general things so I, I spent a lot of time on the science of this starting in uh, March and April of last year, and I spent a good solid two weeks just, you know, getting up to speed on virology, immunology, and ultimately gene therapy, but also epidemiology. And the, one of the things in epidemiology that was obvious right from the beginning is the whole the whole the the field of epidemiology is the study of the spread of diseases in populations, and then potentially they're mitigating strategies to try to minimize the damage that that is done. And generally speaking, the thing that we've all agreed on, epidemiologists forever, 
is that there is one possible useful thing, and that is once you've identified the at-risk population, the people who are actually at risk of dying from the disease, you medically isolate those people. And you medically isolate them until the rest of the population develops what's called natural community immunity, which is another oh, word. Yeah, I, it's, a, it's another word for viral burnout in the case of viruses. What were you going to say? I don't know about that, though. That sounds like that uh, that alarmist conspiracy theory, Great Barrington Declaration. <laughs> right, exactly. So, the, the, and it, this is just how it works, it, 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 and it's a mathematical inevitability, and and. It's, again, so I, I did all this studying of the science of it so that I could understand the terminology because it, it was, it was a, a learning curve in the beginning. But I mm -hmm. think generally in terms of a priori and reason and deductive reasoning, and so it makes it easier for me to explain these things because I don't necessarily have to get all the terminology right to explain the general effects. So the general effect of natural community immunity goes something like this, which is that... The, the, in this case, a virus. The virus is released into the population, and it spreads. And the people who are going to die from it die from it. And that, those are the presumably the, the most dangerous mutations. Um, this is so you've set aside your group of people. Let's just imagine this in this scenario. You've set aside your group of people mm -hmm. who are at risk, and they're actually medically isolated, so they're in no danger of being exposed to the virus in a, in a proper epidemiological quarantine of. Well, it's not quarantine because they're not sick, but uh, of medical yes. isolation for, for those people who are at risk. Then in the normal population, the, the, the population at large, you have the spread of this airborne respiratory virus that cannot be contained. Masks don't contain it. Social distancing doesn't contain it. It is impossible to really affect the spread of an airborne respiratory virus. So it's going to spread through the population. And the most dangerous mutations cause death among the people that, that get it. And those people have obvious symptoms. They're generally, those are the people that actually get quarantined in the traditional sense of the use of that word. Because they're actually very sick and they get quarantined. And nobody else really gets exposed to that mutation that was so dangerous. And it, it dies with them and their bodies are either burned or otherwise disposed of in a hygienic method. And that's the end of that mutation. Um, whereas the more contagious, less deadly versions are the ones that get out into the public because they don't kill people, they last longer, maybe the onset of symptoms is slower. There's a whole variety of, of things that happen that make it mathematically inevitable for the most contagious, least deadly version of the virus to get out to the most people. And those people then develop immunity, and the immunity they develop applies to every mutation. There is not a significant difference between the deadly mutation and the not-so-deadly mutation that the immunity that you develop from the not-so-deadly mutation wouldn't also work on the deadly mutation. This is why vaccines can work in the first place, right? Because the attenuated yeah. version of the virus works for the really bad ver version of the virus because they're similar enough that your immune system can identify the really bad version. So this is yeah, this is just back to the yeah. I was going to say that goes back to the very first vaccines with the cowpox and the smallpox. Exactly, um, and and I think that's technically that's the only vaccine, um, but that, that's a, a, a that's a, a bit of a semantic point to make. <laughs> is, is that actually yeah, that it's like it's called yeah it's like vaccinia something is the name of the virus, and so the vaccine is actually the name of the virus that it was specifically you know you know 
protecting. Mm-hmm. I guess it was cow. It was a cowpox virus that protects against smallpox, and it was vaccinating or something or other. So, yeah. yeah. But I mean, talking about it, I've looked into it a little bit. Not, I think, as much as you have. But I've been amazed at some of the just the poor quality of some of the research that's been put out supporting some of this stuff. And there was one. It was last year. The CDC put it out, and they said, "This, this definitely, this confirms that the masks work. We have evidence that they work." And what they did, they just followed some states that had mask mandates, and they saw the rates drop. They didn't compare to any states that didn't have mask mandates, and then they cut off the endpoint of the study was right before huge spikes in the case numbers. Yeah. And of course, they didn't mention that. It well, so it's funny, you know, I didn't, um, I, most of that stuff I didn't pay much attention to because, <laughs> like I said in the very beginning, I did all this sort of crash course studies and I did a lot of historical looking up of things, and including traditional vaccines, um, because I didn't, I was kind of in the camp of most people, I think, which is sort of indifference to vaccines, like I'd rather not have one, but, you know, hey, if it's really dangerous, okay. That was That was my attitude in the beginning. And then I did the research on, on the actual history of vaccines, and I was like, oh, are you fucking kidding? Excuse my language, but, you know, that this was, that, that's some nasty shit. You go back through that history. There actually is not any good evidence that vaccines are useful at all. In fact, the evidence appears to be that they're very dangerous and unhelpful. <laughs> yeah, but that's traditional them, vaccines. That's nothing to do yeah. with this gene therapy. You know what I mean? Yeah, some of them have real documented side effects that are just ignored or underplayed. Yeah, yeah and and it's the one of the major things that that, that I discovered immediately was that the, the, there's a major problem, and that is sterilization. The manufacturing facilities for all these kinds of vaccines are so bad that they have to add mercury. At least that's this is their justification for adding mercury. Um, because because if they didn't, there would be contamination at just about every stage of the manufacturing process. So they repeatedly add mercury over and over again to to sterilize. You know, I mean, it's just it's so supposedly the mercury is not even really a, a an active ingredient in any way, shape, or form. It's not it's not part of of the vaccine. It's just there to to supposedly it's a preservative. <laughs> it's a preservative, right? But so the thing that one of the things that I studied early was the history of the masks because you know i thought everybody understood for a long time that masks are useless i mean you you if you get diagnosed with mm-hmm. you know some really bad lung-based tb or something you have active tb and you go to the hospital they might ask you to put a mask on to go home um but that's about it and that was and it's and that's tb you know what i mean which is not an airborne respiratory virus which is so small that it will get through an n95 mask there's no way it could possibly stop it but so i looked at the history of the studies over the last 70 years and this is a cdc compiled study of 70 years of of mask studies and they concluded that that masks do not make a significant difference in the transmission of the flu. You know, study after study over 70 years is confirmed, right? And and COVID-19, sorry, SARS-CoV-2, is supposed to be physically smaller than influenza. And, and, and then furthermore, you start looking into it and you realize that, that aerosolization is one of the major factors when it comes to airborne 
you know, being sustained in the air, and masks mm-hmm. tend to aerosolize. So actually masks make it, not, not only do masks not help, but they actually make it worse, just strictly no. speaking in terms of spreading the, the, the virus. Yeah. Now, now, some people may not, may not know about this and may not be able to conceptualize it, but there's different size particles, from what I understand, that you breathe out. And aerosols, some of the smallest, but they're still carrying, of course, the virus particles are much smaller, and they can still carry them, you can still breathe them in. But from what I understand, you breathe out these larger particles, and they break apart as they hit the masks, and they keep going. Right. Because you're still, exactly. you're still breathing, and they just yeah. get smaller and smaller. And, they go and right it would have, would have been better if, if you know what I mean, because the, the people will say, well, but it's the droplets. And it's like, well, the droplets fall, like, pretty close to you, uh, whereas mm-hmm. the aerosolization of the virions tends to be this, you know, cloud that you're creating. Yeah, the droplets <laughs> and are heavy. They, they drop to the ground. Right, exactly. And the, and the virions in the aerosolized form hang in the air longer can be lofted about for further distances, and that's why the MIT study found that, um, I don't know if they actually did a study of masks versus no masks, but they found that that, um, masks do not help at all, and they found that social distancing doesn't help at all because actually transmissibility seemed to be effective up to 60 feet. So, So there is no, so none of this has had any effect at all it, the only thing it could possibly have done is make it worse. And no. when you look at all the policies that government has done at every stage of this, they've all been in direct contravention of existing agreed-upon standard procedure and, in general, mm-hmm. the opposite of whatever was supposed to be done. And it, it gets when you look into it that deep, it gets really kind of spooky. Because you can go back, like you said, and see in the research, which I've done. I can't. I don't think I saw that specific 70-year study that you mentioned, but I've looked at the studies themselves and a lot of meta-analyses, and it seems like the most that could be said is there's a slight decrease if the person who has the illness is masked, the source control. But even then, it's not a very large increase, and masking everyone... Like you said, nothing. It doesn't uh, right. doesn't make any difference. And the same thing with, like you mentioned earlier, uh, the the lockdowns and the isolations. Even even just basic, a basic health science. The way to keep yourself healthy and your immune system strong is not to stay inside all the time and order <laughs> out some delivery food and not go to the gym and not see anyone yeah. you love. You want exactly. You want you want some low level exposures. That's how our immune system trains itself to be resilient. So mm-hmm. so the denying of the exposures to 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 every pathogen because by by insulating yourself in this way, not only does it not protect you against the, because we're not talking about true isolation here. Um, if everybody was boy in a bi- bubble. You know, yeah, maybe that would work, but that completely works against the whole concept of epidemiology, which is you want to have society return to normal. It's it's a it's a it's a, a temporary measure to try to to avoid the worst of the of the outcomes for this small group of people who are identified as the at risk. That's what epidemiology is meant to do. 
and every single policy all over the world, and this is the thing, every single policy everywhere, all over the world, all at the same time, make exactly the same mistakes, quote-unquote, which happen to be directly opposite of what the actual recommendations and experience and history recommends. Yeah, because from what I understand, the thing is, like the people who wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, that was the standard accepted wisdom of the science before all of this happened and they decided to change it. And the Great Barrington Declaration authors absolutely pilloried. They were mocked and, oh, you just want people to die and all kinds of nonsense. But that's what, that was the standard. And all of a sudden, it's not. And you ask to yeah. see, well, what, what studies are you basing all of this on? And they come up with the ones, like I mentioned earlier, that are so obviously flawed. And, and they're still doing it. Oh, there was one they released, I think, just last month in April, maybe March. It was um, a follow-up study on the vaccines, um, the, the mRNA ones. And, of course, the CDC put this out. And it was the one that showed, oh, yes, they're, they're 90% effective. And they just had, they didn't do uh, a case control or even two different groups. It was just a cohort study. And so they just followed people. And as they got vaccinated, there were fewer infections. And that seems to you know, prove their case. But you look at the infection rates in the country, and they were dropping all over the place. And more than half of their cohort came from Arizona. And infection rates in Arizona dropped 95%, which was more effective than getting the vaccine by the numbers. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, it's so much of this is just hand-selecting the, the numbers that, that produce the outcomes you're looking for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of kind of creepy. And now I think you've mentioned you've talked about this a lot on Twitter. And it seems to you've been on Twitter before all of this. I think it was back in twenty sixteen is when you joined. Uh, but it seems like you've really gotten into all of this. And your I think uh, your profile pic on Twitter kind of kind of lays the stage for all of that and kind of your worldview. It's, it's a Star Trek reference, of course, from uh, yes. the classic. I mean, not that Road to Serfdom wouldn't be enough from, of course, F.A. Hayek's work of the same name. But there's that fantastic episode of Star Trek. I mean, you might be able to tell about it uh, better than I am. It's your, your profile picture. Yeah, it's, well, it definitely uh, summarizes the, the general feeling um, which it it's really is kind of weird that it, it all came together. I mean, that is how my account has looked the whole time. I've, you know, I've been, of course, talking about Hayek and complaining about totalitarianism and corporativism and all the things that are coming up. The only thing I didn't really have was any kind of medical complaints. You know, I mean, that's the only real thing that's new. Everything else I've been talking about pretty much the whole time. Uh, but that that Picard, there's a Picard episode from the Next Generation, uh, where he's captured by the Cardassians and they torture him and try to get him to question reality. It's sort of an Orwellian situation where they're 
they have where the Cardassian has a, a torture device in his hand that's a remote control for a pain generator in, in Picard. And he's asking him to tell him, you know, how many lights he can see, and there's four lights there. And he tells him, no, 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 there's five lights. And he keeps repeatedly <laughs> asking him, you know, how many lights. And all you have to do is answer the question correctly, and I'll let you go. Yeah, and he keeps he's, torturing he, him. And yeah. Picard knows it's not correct, so he keeps, like, he... Right. Too true and to there's, a, there's a lot there, there's a lot to the episode and there's a lot underneath this and also at the point where that image is because that's it's a cartoon version of the of the uh, TV show mm-hmm. uh, but at that point Picard is actually he actually explains this at some later point in the TV show or on another episode he explains that at that moment he wasn't really sure whether he did or did not see five lights and you could, there's a hint of it in the part. So, so he's looking at the lights, and he's and he's about to be saved, but he doesn't know it. Um, you know what I mean? The, and so when the Cardass- the other Cardassians come in, they say, you know, why haven't you cleaned this guy up? His his ship is waiting. You're making us look bad. He's like, and you know, he was, and the the bad guy was was just trying to, to get him to finally screw him at the end and make him give him a mind fuck. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Picard was very close, very very close to losing it. So, so there's there's a lot going on in in that in yeah. just image, and I think, I think it's really poignant, especially now because people are are told this stuff over and over. COVID is really dangerous. You've got to wear a mask. You've got to get a vaccine. At the same time that the government is forcing people to stay at home and arresting them if they go out and shutting down their businesses and torturing them for. Uh, for lack of a better term, and a very That's exactly right, very similar to what Picard went through, and of course, he's a fictional, almost, uh, but not Superman, but more than definitely above average uh, person, and even he started to crack at the end, and could almost see the fifth light there, that wasn't there. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like trying to trying to convince people that uh, that there are really four lights is part of uh, what you're doing on Twitter, and you've gotten the pushback. Have, did they actually suspend your account, or did they just keep trying to get rid of that that tweet that we mentioned earlier? Well, the the tweet has remained up the whole time, although they put every possible restriction on it. So you you can't like it, you can't retweet it, you can't comment on it. You can only quote tweet it, and they don't record all the quote tweets, so nobody can tell what the stats are. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I've been suspended uh, f- five, possibly six times, well, six times, five standard three-day suspensions over the course of this, which has been about six weeks, maybe seven weeks, close to soon. Um, so whenever it starts to climb, they suspend me because I, I, I'm ret- retweeting the, the, the quote tweets. So they, that cuts off my ability to retweet the quote tweets, and that s- slows down the spread. But right from the beginning, it was it was viral, and people started taking screenshots. So I don't even I don't really even know what the numbers are now because there's so many screenshots and paraphrases and, and tr- language translations. I mean, it's it's in you know it's in Indian and <laughs> Japanese and Chinese and you know it's it's in almost every language. Wow, I'd seen already. the screenshots, but I hadn't seen the multiple languages. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
It's so it's it's and now I'm working on I, I have a set of t. There's actually one guy who did t-shirts already and mugs, um, so you can get t-shirts and mugs already. But wow. I'm doing a run of t-shirts hopefully soon. And people were talking about putting it up on billboards, which I think would be great. Yeah, um, I think just putting it on flyers because if it works, I just want this message to get out. Right. So I said. What I said was, I don't want anything, I don't want to make any money off of this, just go out there and make t-shirts, because I want people to read this message. And it it needs to get off Twitter, because it's, it's, you know what I mean, like it needs, we need to penetrate society with this message. And so billboards would be great, um, but I think flyers is probably going to be ultimately the best way, because you can print up 50 flyers and put them on car windshields. Mm-hmm. And that's going to reach 50 people. 50 people will read it if it's on their car windshield. That's my hope. That would be that's a good idea. Because even, even if they don't agree with agree. the whole thing, at the very least, it can start them thinking and start them questioning. And there are a lot of the retweets. Exactly. Sorry to interrupt. I, yeah. There are a lot of retweets from people who are pro-vaccine. You know, who who think it's not a gene, gene therapy? They think it's a vaccine, and they're for it, and they're still retweeting and supporting it because they don't like the censorship. Mm-hmm. So there is some crossover in in the support for this tweet, which is interesting um, and and very encouraging, frankly. Mm-hmm. That is. So I try I try not to pick on those people. There are people who who then jump in and just pile on them, and I try to try to say, don't pig pile on. He's 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 sticking his neck out agreeing with parts of this message just leave him alone for the moment i disagree with him of course on that too but he's supporting the message he's bringing this message to his people you know what i mean like so Mm -hmm. i have been trying to sort of hold some people back a little bit um i don't go i try not to get too involved but uh, but i have seen that happen a couple of times and stepped in and, and at least tried to clarify that these people are, are, are sticking their neck out by by saying anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? These are people that are mostly indoctrinated who are at least noticing that this there's something wrong here and they're saying it out loud at, at risk to their own reputation. So Yeah, when you start to take those first those first steps, it can be it can be a little a little scary. And you can't expect someone especially someone who's been taught and indoctrinated their whole lives in the standard way of thinking to accept something so radical right off the bat. But they can get that first piece and then can start to work on their minds and eventually, hopefully, they come to realize uh, all of the truth as much as they can. Hmm. That's, that is definitely the hope. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you've read much of my uh, Twitter feed. I mean, uh, because I do so much retweeting of these tweets, basically it would be impossible to really keep track of what the hell I'm talking about because <laughs> there might there might be a hundred retweets between my tweets. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Yeah. But, yeah. Right. So, but so I so I've been trying to do more, you know, you know, repeating myself more often. I say fewer things more often now than I had before to try to, to keep these what I think to be the most important points at the at the forefront of, of the feed, at least. A lot of people have to come directly to my feed because I'm, I'm so shadow banned that mm-hmm. the only way you're really ever going to see my tweets are, is, is to come to my timeline. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, so if I'm going to go away for eight hours to go to sleep, I'll try to put something of interest at the top 
so that at least it has a chance of being seen uh, while I'm not doing my retweeting. Mm-hmm. Try to get the, get the message out there as loudly as possible. Yeah. And and the reason I was asking if you've read it is that I, I I have some pretty, I mean, I'm not the only one who's noticing these things, but I am pretty radical in terms of opinion that I've been trying to express. I mean, th- that tweet is pretty tame compared to what <laughs> I think is the problem that we should be worried about. Um, I'm, I'm afraid of, that we are in full-on totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. I can I can understand that, Have you, especially with everything yeah. happening at the same time, or almost the same time all over the world, like you mentioned, in response to something that, now that the numbers are out, doesn't seem to have justified it at all. And it's still going And it's along. not just that now the numbers are out. Because like, in the very beginning, one of the things that I, that I would post besides the that completely just you know that that study of masks completely demolishes any argument for the masks this you know i have the the numbers from the cdc about the fatality rates completely demolishes all this discussions on the on the danger of the virus the the uk government because i I have a lot of uk followers and and the uk uh, government was pretty bad in the beginning Mm -hmm. they were one of the leaders who did all the wrong things first (laughs) And so I was focusing a lot of attention on them, and it turns out there's there's this um, part of the UK government that declared that COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, was not a significant infectious disease just before they locked down. Mm-hmm. It was like on March 23rd or something. So it was before they actually did all the crazy, radical oppressive stuff that their own government declared that it was actually not a big deal. Uh-huh. Someone wasn't supposed to put that out. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. I mean, it makes you wonder because they're not all coordinated. Everyone has this idea that that, um, that all this stuff is completely coordinated. And, and I am, of course, making the argument that there is coordination here. But not it's not that everybody knows exactly what's going on. It's just that everybody is following orders. And every once in a while you'll find somebody who just didn't get orders or chooses not to follow them. And this was probably one of those situations. It was probably just some normal doctor who's released it, put it on their website, and didn't really publish it, so nobody really knew. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So and, and there it was. It's still there, too. I mean, you can go and find it. It's got the date on it, and... That's that's it. I mean, most of this stuff was actually based on the false numbers that were coming out of Italy at the time, like in February. Yes, I remember that. I remember that. Yep. They were all, everyone was freaking out. All these people are dying. They're dying in Italy. They're going to die here unless we do this. And it's scared yep. enough people. And I don't know if you know about the... You know, I don't know if you followed up on that, but again, this all was clarified before the lockdowns in the UK. But it turned out that all those numbers were false that um, the actual death rate in Italy was probably closer to 7% of what they were reporting. Mm. It turned out there was several reasons for that. One was that anyone who died in Italy was just recorded as COVID-19. Everyone. Everyone in those hospitals. And there were hospitals filled with people who were, like, about to die. Um, And then, but the the real key things for me, because, like, at the time, I I was just trying to get caught up on the science, right? Mm -hmm. 
So I, I, I couldn't really say one way or another. It seems so obvious to me now, but at the time, I was just as in the dark as anybody else. And the, the two things that I seized on were the naval ships. There was, there was a cruise ship and, a, and a, a military naval ship that both had perfect scenarios. So you were actually able to get proper measurements of what the danger of, the, of COVID-19 was on these two ships. And maybe there were some others, but those were the two I looked at. And it was conclusive that, that we, we, we were able to identify that it wasn't a danger to almost anybody, and, but it was a danger to the people in this very small group, 80 over, who have three, two to three comorbidities. I mean, it was just plain as day who was, a, who was in danger. Mm-hmm. And everybody else wasn't. And this, this all happened around the time, and it probably would contributed to the fact that the UK government declared it not a significant infectious disease all before the lockdowns. And the other thing about this, that, that so this began my whole assessment of this, that it, that it has been malicious. Not, not, it's not that it's just been a mistake or that, that it, you know, it was just a big accident, but rather that it was intentional. And the reason I say this is, at the t- well, at the time, the evidence that I had was that they were talking about this being a terrible infectious disease but they were having police go around and rough people up without masks or you know what i mean like the police had no kind of protection but they were sending police into houses into restaurants to yeah, grab yeah. people to arrest them to put them in jail and then in america you had them releasing criminals out of jails to fill the jails with you know mothers who had taken their toddlers to the park <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was just so obviously, from my perspective, a provocation to violence. That's that's the way I took it. Because the police in America actually had press conferences where they said, the police are no longer going to enforce the law. We are no longer going to protect you from criminals. But we are going to start considering you all criminals. Mm-hmm. If you don't do... What we say, and, and and we're gonna well, yeah, and we're gonna release all the criminals. Oh man! And they, they didn't just do it; they said it, mm-hmm. and then they started hassling people. And so this is all, you know, the individual cops, you know, are, are bad, of course, and and they're gonna do whatever they're allowed to do, but they didn't understand what was going on. I assume. Um, I don't think that the individual people involved in this are aware of the parts that they're playing. Um, but but the overall goal, from my perspective, looking at this as, uh, from the top down, was that this was intended to provoke violence. Mm-hmm. And and that is consistent with the, the lockstep document. Now, are you familiar at all with the lockstep document? No, I don't think I've heard of those. It's a um, it's something that has been considered a conspiracy theory for the last decade or so, and it's it's a, a Rockefeller Foundation speculative um, sort of game scenario of of projected what the future might look like, and this was done ten ten years ago, right? And so one of the one of the scenarios is called lockstep, and lockstep is a perfect description of what has happened. A, a, a virus is released, and governments do this, that, and the other thing, and then and they, and people freak out and they start to react, and their reactions are used to justify further lockdowns and further restrictions. I mean, it's it's literally a plan. 
you know. That's scary. So the whole thing is is all the and so that same document with those scenarios has other things in it. One of them is called Hack Attack, and that's what we're starting to do right now. And basically, it describes uh, hackers start shutting down power, fuel, and communications. And the government has to seize control over power, fuel, and communications in order to protect the public from these terrible mm -hmm. hackers. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that can't, can't lead to anything going wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's now happening. I mean, the propaganda on that has been going for months now. It started really late last year, um, but I don't know if you know, but just very recently they've had we've had this supposed hacker attack on some pipeline somewhere, and that's supposedly shut down the power. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, this is such things. absurd. That's so absurd. You know what I mean? Like, a, and 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 the the stories that you see just technically don't make any sense. I mean, it's possible that the stories were just written by somebody who didn't understand, but one of the stories that I recently saw was that they have a tanker full of gas, quote-unquote, G-A-S, coming because we don't have enough gas. It's like um, they don't transport gas in tankers between countries over the ocean. You transfer uh, fuel oil, and then you refine it because you have completely different formulations for your refinements in different geographic areas. <laughs> <laughs> so there won't there won't ever right so I mean it just so either they it's just really really poor propaganda mm -hmm. or just a really really stupid journalist or whatever but that's just not how these things work and 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 the fact that I mean there isn't we don't really have to get into the details of why it is that a, that a hack wouldn't do any of these things anyway. Um, the main point is that this was written in stone 10 years ago, that this is what will happen. We just watched something else in that same document happen verbatim, and this is emerging the same way. So that that document is, is so far pretty reliable. Now, beyond that, there's the Agenda 21 information. Mm. Agenda 21 is, is all, all of these things... I should say, maybe I should say it afterwards, but I'll, I'll describe it now because I'm doing it. Um, I, I call this the global totalitarian corporativist state. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I chose that term because it's, it's the most accurate term for what is actually happening, and it explains what has happened in huh. the past because we've been, we've been corporativists for a long mm -hmm. time. And I don't know if you're familiar with corporativism is, is actually a government form and an ideology. It's it's also known as fascism yeah, yes. uh, or corporatism, yes. yeah. right? And what it is is it's actually a planned economy. It's a, it's a it's a kind of a socialism. It's definitely cons you know associated with socialism, but it's really it's got its roots in syndicalism, trade unionism, and um, guild socialism. As, as I understand, things and, are, are nominally privately owned. Like the industries are nominally privately owned, but the government determines how they're run, who works for them, what they're paid, virtually everything. That Exactly. Right. And, and another way to describe it is that that society is divided up into corporate economic sectors and the corporations in charge of those economic sectors perform the functions of the state. Mm -hmm. so. so the both definitions are, are roughly accurate. Now in you know fascist Italy, there was a, it, it was overtly 
fascist. They, they didn't try to hide the fact that they were corporativism, so, so there wasn't really a major distinction between things done by the corporate state or the, the central state. Um, but since we're not actually admitted to be a fascism, we have this sort of proto-fascism, proto-corporativism um, situation where, and this has been true for a long time, where the state dictates to corporations how it should manage these economic planning policies that it has conceived of. And then if the corporations get caught enacting these state-dictated economic plan, because the government's not supposed to do economic planning, right? We're supposed to be a capitalism, free market. So it's it's completely anti, you know, it's against the Constitution for the government to be involved in any of these economic planning activities. So what it has been doing is delegating these tasks to corporations and then if they get caught they have you know a sort of a show trial in front of congress or an executive order that scolds and and says you know tisk tisk to whoever the corporate person is mm-hmm. and then they just replace the person and leave it in the hands of the corporation or they move the project to another corporation or worst case scenario they nationalize the program so this has been true for a long time, and we, we haven't really seen a major difference. The only difference now is that it's becoming more overt. So I call I call this global totalitarian corporatist state, and it's synonymous with what people have been calling the new world mm-hmm. order. You know, and for all intents and purposes, because it is this easier to get out. Well, and also new world order just has. Um, you know, the conspiracy theory soiling mm-hmm. all over it for, for so long because people have been talking about it. Whereas the GTCS is a more accurate mm-hmm. description and people don't, people don't even know what corporativism is, so you have to explain it. So that gives me a chance to explain it. And the, probably the most important thing, the reason I chose corporativism as the word to identify this in the first place five years ago when I started mm-hmm. on Twitter was because Republicans, people on the right, tend to be pro-corporate because they think corporations are yes, capitalist. They think that's good. We're, we're a capitalist and society. We don't want socialism. Right, right. We, right. We want corporations. And it's like, well, you guys don't understand. Corporations have never been a capitalist institution. They are not an organization of capitalism. They have always been a, either a mercantilist or overtly corporativist construct. You know, the, the whole the whole purpose of a corporation is that the government grants a charter to a company to have a monopoly control over a certain part of an economic sector. You think that's capitalism? It's a creation of the state. <laughs> but unless, unless yeah. you explain it that way, they'd never realize it because they just think, oh, it's not socialism, right. it's capitalism. Right, exactly. And because this, the, the, the word corporate, corporation and corporatist have been misused and, and obfuscated so much by the left and the right, it was just a useless word. So I had to fall back on the Italian original mm-hmm. corporatism because it just makes people pause and say, what the hell are you talking about? Do you, do you stutter? Did you stutter? What the hell did you just say? And you get to say what, what you're talking about. But if I said corporatist, then you know the people on the left would maybe agree with me but not have any idea what the hell I'm talking about because they still think corporations are the only yeah. enemy. They think the corporations are the bad guys and the state is the good guy. Oh. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's tricky because then you're, you're fighting different battles on each side to try to get people to see. But by calling it corporatist, 
exactly. Well, it, my hope is, anyway, and, and I think that this is true, by calling it by its original name, I'm able to actually identify the problem, mm-hmm. which is the corporate state, the, the, which is you know, the, the centralized government that uses corporations as organs of, mm-hmm. for policy. And as long as people eventually get this, then we then that's then they'll identify the enemy. The enemy is is the GTCS. So gl- worldwide, all governments and all corporations are the enemy. Well, that, so that this sounds this sounds very dire, because governments and corporations are everywhere, all over the earth. So then, what yes. what can correct. be done? Interesting that you should ask this question. Did you happen to have you noticed my? Um, uh, mass recall tweet or well I'll just explain because uh, I don't I didn't prompt you to say this but I I came up with a solution in April of last year because when I started looking at all of this I was really freaking out for a whole month and, and yeah and I, I knew almost as much as I know now even back then and so I I came up with what I call mass recall. I think at, in the, at first I called it peaceful town-level civil rebellion. Mm-hmm. And my, my conception is this, that what we need to do is gather 500 to 1,000 families in your town, and that translates to three or 4,000 people, maybe 5,000 people, and as a group go to your town hall and remove all your town officials. And once they're in custody and safely ensconced wherever they can be safely held for later trial, then we make contact with our surrounding towns. Now, all the towns need to do this at the same time. You can't just have this happen in one place and then expect the process to spread. It actually has to happen simultaneously everywhere. But if you can imagine that, you know, the 60 towns around you that comprise a county, or 10 or whatever the number is, um, if they all had a town-level civil rebellion, totally peaceful, no deaths, and it's totally legal to remove your town officials from your town. Like if, if your town says, hey, guys, get out of there, and you all show up and you say that, they have to go, right? There's no, this is not an illegal thing. So it's a peaceful, town-level civil rebellion. And if everybody does that in every town, and there's 16,000 towns in the United States, then that means, and then after that, you ask the county officials to step down. And they'll really have no choice because they don't really have any geographic place to run to. They're, they're going to be in your towns, right? The county officials mm-hmm. are in the towns. So, so that means you've got your towns and your county people in custody, and you can ask them questions and find out what kind of crazy, you know, nefarious plans are in place based on GT, GTCS mm-hmm. intel because there's going to be some people who will have information. And so this will really be a tremendous intelligence boon for the public to find out what's been going on. Um, But ultimately, it means in the case of the United States, you'd have 16,000 towns in open, peaceful revolt, and that would leave just the cities and the central government uh, in place in the end. I mean, maybe some state stuff, too. I guess the states would be in the cities, state governments. But this means that you'd have most of your people free already. And there would be a small number of federal employees and state employees who would be hiding out in cities. And so they would have, at that point, two choices. One is to launch all-out war and try to annihilate everybody else in the entire country and kill the entire population. 
which I don't think they're going to do. Um, but they could. Uh, but if they were going to do that, I think we're probably better off finding that out now than waiting for them to further consolidate. Get more power. Right? Yes. So, yeah, get more power. And this is important because the reason town-level civil rebellion will work, and I'm certain it will work, is because the people who comprise your town officials are generally your neighbors, your family, and your friends, still to this day. The towns are usually not people from other towns that hold these positions. So that means you can show up with your family and be reasonably sure that the police chief is not going to shoot your three-year-old in the head. Right? So this is why you bring the whole family, because we, we want to make this peaceful, and we want it to be quick and end peacefully and not have it be a bloodbath. And that will work as long as you know the people who are there. And this will not stay the case forever. And they're already proceeding to, to militarize governments everywhere. They're certainly doing it in the cities already. But eventually they'll do this in the towns as well. So they'll start, you know, eventually there'll be, you know, a colonel will show up and take over your town and there'll be a military installation there instead of your police. And that makes things a lot more difficult. So we want to try to do this before we get to that point. <clears throat> and I've been talking about this for a year now. Um, I, I, I put together the thread to describe mass recall by that name in November last year. Uh, but I had been talking about it for months before that as, as peaceful town noble civil rebellion. Um, and I think that's the only way. It's the only peaceful way. And it's the only way that actually removes the physical power that they have um, and and puts it, they will still have the ability to kill everybody, but I don't think they're going to do it. And, and it's for the similar reasons. In other words, let's say you, so once, if you have 16,000 towns, and they're all in peaceful town level civil rebellion, almost everybody in your military, because most countries are comprised of a military that is people from the towns mm -hmm. in the country. There'll be some people from cities, but most of them are going to be from the towns. And so you can't just order somebody to nuke their hometown. Right, and plus it, it's the whole purpose of this is to remove um, the, the the permission. I'm just drawing a blank on the word I'm looking for here, but the idea is that you know everybody talks about the social contract and and we and and it's actually people grant the government's power over them by choice. They, they give consent. Consent is the word I was looking for. I was just drawing a blank. So this consent is re removed. Once you have town-level rebellion, there's no more consent. So there is no justification for the government to wage war against its own citizens who no longer mm -hmm. consent to it. See what I mean? So actually, in every sense, legally and philosophically and militarily, they will have no power in in, in any kind of real sense other than the fact that they have their fingers on buttons. And the truth of the matter is, you know, if, if they decided to use weapons of mass destruction against the entire population, again, if they're going to do that now, then they were going to do that later, right? So it's not a question, it doesn't, doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it because they might do that. It means we have to do it now before, before it becomes more likely that they'll do that. But I... But I don't think they're going to do that because the people who are still, the, the majority of the military is still comprised of people from towns, and they're not going to want to nuke their hometown or their mm -hmm. buddy's hometown. Really good point. Right. I, like that, I like that a lot, kind of um, 
a grassroots movement to take back political power from the big government and deliver it back to the people. Yep. And it's and it's and I describe it as a decentralization movement. So what this is is it's not anarchy. I mean, I'm a I'm a anarcho-capitalist myself. I would like to live in a place with no government, but I'm a realist <laughs> as well. Not a pragmatist, but a realist. Um, you know, so decentralization is really the only practical thing because it you know you reduce government down to the smallest possible polity that that can be managed by a local population. So you get back to the towns, and then the towns can negotiate with each other and have you know, defense agreements and stuff. It doesn't mean that there won't be any federations that would evolve from this. But having federations across the United States of towns that are voluntary and and new would be a much better arrangement than this top-down centralized yeah, situation. So it's not the absence of government. Right. It's not the absence of government. It is the complete removal of the existing hierarchy. And... Initially, anyway, it would it would not be a, a, a military thing at all. It, I don't know what happens when we get to the central government. Once we get to the point where the central government has to make its decision about whether it tries to stay in power or not, I don't know what's going to happen. That could get ugly. Uh, but I, I'm actually guessing that they probably will capitulate for the reasons mm-hmm. I described already. Um, the people in power won't want to, but but the actual agents of governments, you know, the, the, the military people, the, the colonels, the sergeants, the privates, they're not going to want to fight for the global totalitarian yeah, government. It all depends. On, the government's power depends on people following their orders. And if people aren't going to do it, yeah. they lose the power. Yeah. And I don't know for sure. I'm, I'm leaving open the possibility mm-hmm. that they will. But like I said, it, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do this. It just means mm-hmm. we should do it soon. And then, frankly, so it sounds good. But then, then of course, there's there's the obvious challenge of getting everyone in every town to do this at the same time. So that's that's where it gets it gets tricky. It sounds good, but yes. Uh, so uh, so my thing my thing has been to to try to just spread the idea mm-hmm. alone on Twitter to as many people as possible. Uh, while we still have communications, because it has been my assumption that at some point there'll be a, a shift in in the in the tone of the country, a shift in in power, as it were, where no longer will two-way communications, mass communications, benefit the propaganda machine. It, it'll it'll come to a point where two-way communications are being used by individuals to share useful information between them each other and no longer listening to the propaganda. And at that point, they'll shut off communications. This is my... my I think we've, we've already seen some... No. I was going to say, it, we've already is, seen some of that in the, in the censoring that's happened, in uh, the only voice being the fact-checkers, exactly. who, strangely, always seem to support what the government yep, says. Yep. And it's a... <laughs> exactly, right. And that's, uh, that is absolutely true. In other words, we're seeing the symptoms of this, which mm-hmm. had already been there, um, but at some point, they actually will cut mm-hmm. off communications, and it probably will be connected to this hack attack thing, where they'll, they'll blame mm-hmm. it on power, and they'll shut off power, and then that will be the excuse to shut off communications. Uh, I think I've been saying recently, because I've been doing some evaluations of what I think is going to happen as this develops, I think they will 
hold on to two-way communications for as long as possible because it's just so useful for propaganda. But at the point that they shut it off, um, they're going to probably maintain push propaganda. So, and and the the propaganda that they push out is probably going to be increasingly weaponized. So they're going to try to get people to fight each other. I don't know the extent to which they're going to actually do that. It could be could, they could go completely full on psychological warfare and you know and try to get a town to attack another town. I really don't know what they're going to come up with. They, they could do that. Um, so the, the the faster, more you know, the, be- the better we are at distributing the information about mass recall to as many people as possible. Now, while we can, the better chances we have. But at some point, whether or not we lose electronic communications, it's going to come down to flyers. That is the only way to actually reach your neighbors. If you want everyone on your street to know something, you put flyers up on the telephone poles and on on car windows. And that's how we'll do mass recall. And that's that's part of why I like the idea of using flyers for this tweet, because it's a practice run for the mass recall. Uh, flyers. flyers, that makes me think of, uh, gives me shades of, of the White Rose Society and Helmut Hubner in Nazi Germany. Hmm. It was a similar situation. The government controlled the radio waves, and if you wanted to get any other message out, you had to, had to do it on your own. It's the only way to do it, and so so getting the, so the problem is going to be will people respond? That's that's sort of the final stage of the of the, the potential threat, mm-hmm. potential problem with this. But I think by the time we get to the point where there's enough people in every town to print up enough flyers to actually reach everybody, by then it should be self-evident that we need to do mass recall. So at that point, mass recall will be just a clarification of what we're doing and why, what what we expect to, to achieve. Because the, the, one of the major dangers with this is that it could evolve into some kind of revolutionary ideology. There could be somebody who claims mm-hmm. to be a leader of it. And then you just have a and whole cycle starts again. government, right? The, right? the whole purpose here is, is towns, decentralized towns, that have no, you can have a leader in your town, but there can't be a leader by definition in a decentralization mm-hmm. movement. And that's that's partly because a, you know a leader could be compromised. Um, so you know, I mean, we really don't want to have anyone that that is coordinating this because then it's some sort of, you know, the government could say, ah, well, so this this guy is trying to take over the world yeah. you know what i mean but it's not it's we're talking about everybody mm-hmm. just taking over their towns and nothing more than that and then and then it's then it's the balls in their court what do you guys want to do you want do you want to murder us all i mean we we know they want to murder us all already yeah, are you going to do um, that? <laughs> that's the other right right well and that's the that's the technical conclusion but i also know that the individuals involved don't want to murder us so even though this is this is why it's such a, a tricky problem is that our, our neighbors in our own towns are trying to murder us mm-hmm. and they don't even realize it yeah that's i think that's why part of why what you're doing just spreading the word and making people aware or even getting them starting to think about what's happening is so important because then I think that'll make the difference, as you say, when it becomes obvious that some kind of secession or mass recall is necessary. They're not too stunned to do anything. 
because they've already thought of this before, and okay, we know what we need to do, instead of having no idea until it's too late. Exactly, and also not to, to not to wait for some, you know, charismatic personality mm-hmm. to say go. So the the test the test of when we do this. Originally, I was assuming we would lose power in communications, and so we would be relying on flyers and, and runners between towns. And so my thought was, handle this sort of like the internet. And you know, let's let's say you have five towns that border your town. You get everybody on board with mass recall in your town, and then you sit on your hands and and don't do anything until you've confirmed that every town around you is also ready. <clears throat> and and then you have the towns around you confirm the towns around them are ready. And eventually you can build a map from each town. So let's say you have five towns around you, you have a map of the United States, and you will eventually get messages from every single town, and you might get different messages from different towns. So the north town might say that this town is ready, and then the south town might say it's not ready. So you wait until those messages are in agreement, and then you have a higher likelihood that that town off in another county is ready kind of a thing. This is kind of just a... I'm trying to figure out the best way to confirm that that, it, that most towns are ready. You certainly don't want to do it unless every town immediately mm-hmm. around you is ready. But that may not be good either. You want to wait until your whole county at least is ready. Maybe your whole mm-hmm. state. Uh, or maybe the whole country. Ideally, the whole world. We'd really want this to be yeah, the more worldwide. The for sure, because then it's less likely to invite um, violent retaliation, or less likely violent retaliation will happen. Exactly. Hmm. Yep. I think one thing that that freedom lovers have on their side is that people are basically good unless. Uh, they've been twisted to be otherwise and people like you said don't want to see other people suffer they don't want to shoot especially their their friends their neighbors people who are even from their hometown their home state there's that human connection that i think governments try to replicate with their patriotism and such things like that i don't think you can really replace it. I think that's one advantage that we have on our side. Yep. And if I can uh, kind of change the uh, change the gears a little bit, uh, one thing that made me think of that was uh, your recent uh, foray with, uh, with charity that you found uh, on Twitter. <laughs> oh yes, my bigathon. Right? That was, that was oh. really... <laughs> <laughs> that was inspirational because I, I just I, I had been spending the the tweet went crazy and I was spending all my time retweeting it right, and I've been sustaining myself selling on eBay for for the, for basically a decade, um, but I didn't spend much time doing anything and the things I was able to put up that normally would sell didn't sell, and so I got down to the wire. I was already behind on the rent and everything. Um, and I got down to, like, I have seven hours before I'm going to be kicked out of here. And I don't know where the money's going to come from. And I finally just said, well, I'll just I'll go on Twitter and do a begathon and let's see if that works, you know. <laughs> I had no choice, and it worked. I could not believe how, 
how helpful everybody was. And people just kept trying to help, you know, hours after it, the days after it. And I was having to say, no, 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 the Begathon works. Thank you, thank you. No, I don't need any more. I mean, of course, I still need some, but, but I got through my emergency. And I, I didn't want to take any money from anybody mm -hmm. if it's not an emergency, right? Um, what I was, what I would say to them is, well, go to my Patreon and donate then, because uh, that would be great. And of course, nobody goes to my Patreon and donates. You know, if I just took the damn money, I'd probably be okay. But I, I, I don't want to take the money if it's not an emergency, and nobody wants to go to my Patreon uh, to donate. Kind of so. stuck between <laughs> uh. And if you want to, I should probably recommend. This is what I'll add in the end: is I started my own podcast mm -hmm. just about a, a month ago. And it's just called Road to Serfdom's Stream of Consciousness. And it's on Podbean. Podbean. Uh, uh, but you can I find see. it if you That's go to my account top. on Twitter. It's it's in uh, my profile. Okay. If you listen to if you just I mean if you listen to the most recent episode, I talk about some crazy shit. I talk about some some of my life. It's only they're all only mm -hmm. less than twenty minutes. I try to keep them under twenty minutes because they're completely unstructured. Um, but that that most recent one is pretty pretty wacky because I describe exactly what it is I think is happening, and I describe some of my early experiences which help to explain why it is I even noticed all of this so early. Um, but the, probably it's better to start at the beginning. But there's ten episodes. You know, it's, it's a couple of hours of content if you start at the beginning. And I'll definitely link to that and to uh, your Twitter feed you know, when we put this up. So. But you know, thank you very much, Road to Serfdom, cool. for joining us. And I'm excited for everyone to hear this episode. <laughs> going to be good. Thank you very much. It's good to talk to you. Hey, thank you very much for watching this video. If you liked it, please like, share, subscribe, drop a comment. If you'd like, please go over and visit our website and donate to one of our causes. VIA couldn't do anything without the generous support of donors like you.